unhappy memories, yet I welcome you. You are my long-lost youth. May 10th, 1940. Nazi Germany invades France. In the coming weeks, France would fall to the Third Reich. The country would find itself in the grips of Hitler and his army until liberated by the Allied forces in August of 1944. Almost immediately, various groups calling themselves the French Resistance would fight back and attempt to free occupied France. Most of these attempts failed. In 1943, Joseph Kessel, a member of the Resistance, published a novel loosely adapted from his own experience. Over 25 years later, his novel was adapted into a film that has since become regarded as one of the great foreign films in the pantheon of cinema. This is Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of Shadows. You're listening to Film Survey with J.G. Murphy. I am your host, J.G. Every week, we explore the history and themes of some of the greatest films in cinema history. But instead of randomly picking films week in and week out, we look at a certain theme and multiple films that are linked by that theme, sort of like a college course. Our first section is Viva la France, French Filmmakers and the Story of France. This show is part of the TMK Pictures family of podcasts. For more content, please visit our website, www.tmkpictures.com, and our YouTube channel. Just look for The Green Clover. We've reached the final film of our first season. I sincerely hope you've enjoyed this exploration of French history through film as much as I have. I've learned a lot about how some of France's greatest directors look back on their own history. Army of Shadows has a very interesting history, which I was unaware of until I started researching it. When looking for material for this first season, this film came up in just about every list I could find. So, clearly, there was something about this one that warrants the praise. Now, I got lucky with the first three films I covered. I either owned them, or they were available on streaming services. This one was not the case, and I was worried I'd have to rent the film again and again in case I needed to go back and look at some things. Luckily, Criterion, those wonderful people, were selling it for half off. Again, this is not a sponsorship. I genuinely love the Criterion collection. Just like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I went in cold on this film. I had heard of Napoleon and The Passion of Joan of Arc. I knew what they were about. I did not know what Army of Shadows was about, aside from its focus on the French Resistance. It's fun not knowing. Too often today, we know too much about movies before we watch them. We know what they're about, and with the deluge of trailers, we practically know the entire plot. So, when I get a chance to know as little about a movie as possible, it's exciting. When researching the history of this film, I thought it would be a good idea to look at Free France and the Resistance, and the muddy history of Charles de Gaulle. So, without further ado, let's get started. Upon the initial invasion of France, many French people were left in shock as their famous tricolor flag was replaced by the swastika. British historian Ian Owsby wrote, even today, when people who are not French or did not live through the occupation 
look at photos of German soldiers marching down the Champs-Élysées, or of Gothic-lettered German signposts outside the great landmarks of Paris, they can still feel a slight shock of disbelief. The scenes look not just unreal, but almost deliberately surreal, as if the unexpected conjunction of German and French, French and German, was the result of a Dada prank, and not the sober record of history. This shock is merely a distant echo of what the French underwent in 1940. Seeing a familiar landscape transformed by the addition of the unfamiliar, living among everyday sights suddenly made bizarre, no longer feeling at home in places they had known all their lives. The Nazi forces pillaged the country, taking priceless art pieces back to Germany, renaming buildings, and forcing the French government to deport Germans and Austrians who fled to France in the 1930s. The first resistance was based around Jean Cassot's idea of absurd refusal, refusing to accept that the Reich would ever win. Even if it did, it was better to resist. Resistance members lived a dangerous life as they lived among the everyday people of France. It was extremely important that they never brought attention to themselves or they risk exposing their colleagues. Armed resistance didn't begin until 1941 due to lack of access to weapons and ammunition. Free France was set up in London in 1940 and supported the resistance back in France. This government, which oversaw France's colonies, saw the rise of Charles de Gaulle as its leader. De Gaulle was a military officer who quickly rose ranks, and on June 18, 1940, he made an appeal on BBC Radio in which he said, France is not alone. She is not alone. She has a great empire behind her. Together with the British Empire, she can form a bloc that controls the seas and continues the struggle. She may, like England, draw upon the limitless industrial resources of the United States. At first, the response among the French people was limited. Many were divided as the Vichy government still stood. This led to just 7,000 troops joining de Gaulle. De Gaulle had to settle for fighting for the protection of France's colonies for most of the war. It wasn't until the Allied forces Operation Overload that de Gaulle could work on liberating France. And of course, the rest is history. This is where de Gaulle becomes controversial. Though he once supported the resistance, he did not want the largely communist movement to have a part in the new government. He oversaw the provisional government of the French Republic until he abruptly resigned on January 26, 1946, seemingly returning to civilian life. He'd returned to government with the fall of the Fourth Republic, and would be elected president of the Fifth Republic. I could spend a good length of time detailing his presidency, but I want to focus on May 1968. Gaullist France was conservative, Catholic, and had few women in high-level political positions. The government also had direct influence over the broadcast news, and the people grew tired of de Gaulle. And in May 1968, mass demonstrations and strikes appeared across the country. Fearing civil war, de Gaulle fled to Baden-Baden in Germany 
to discuss with French military officials about possible military intervention. He would return to France and agreed to some demands the demonstrators had cried for and had agreed to hold new elections. However, despite the unpopularity of de Gaulle, he and the rest of the Gaullists overwhelmingly won the election, winning 352 of 457 seats in parliament. This directly affected Army of Shadows, released in September 1969, after de Gaulle had resigned. Many critics felt the film glorified the French leader and denounced the film entirely. American art film programmers took their cues from these critics and refused to show the film in the US for almost 40 years. However, in the mid-1990s, the Carrière du Cinéma, a French film magazine, published a reappraisal of the film, leading to its restoration and first-time US release in 2006. Upon its long-awaited release, the film was praised in the US, with Roger Ebert calling it one of the best foreign films of the year, despite it being 37 years old. Our story continues in a moment. And now, back to the show. Army of Shadows is incredibly bleak for its time and shows no interest in glorifying its heroes. The only thing to me that seems to suggest a possible affinity to de Gaulle is the fact that the main character works with contacts in London. It is a grim look at people who were forced to do things they had never had to do before for the sake of the country and offers no hope of victory. It's an unusual take on war films for the time. Up until that point, war films looked at their heroes as just people who are fighting the good fight. But as we know today, no one is truly just in war. And perhaps that's Melville's message. Our main character, Philippe Gerbier, leads a small group of resistance members as they try to build a movement and gain allies. But due to so few allies, Gerbier spends a majority of the film breaking out allies and laying a heavy hand on those who betray him. This is evident when Gerbier and his allies execute one of their own, who had given up Gerbier and led to his imprisonment at the beginning of the film. The trio, including Gerbier, seem to have no idea how to carry out the execution, exhibiting their uneasiness with the ordeal. But they know they have to follow through if they hope to continue the movement. They cannot tolerate traitors who give up names. It leads to this idea that, within the movement, you can be trusted, but no one is required to be loyal to you. Most members in the group know very little about each other, and they prefer to keep it that way. They are forced to trust each other, which is hard to do when you don't know much about your compatriots. It is never more apparent than when Gerbier and Luc Jardy convince their colleagues that Mathilde, their longtime ally, must be murdered in order to prevent her from naming names. Mathilde had just been captured by the Nazis, and they threatened to throw her daughter into a brothel if she doesn't give them the names of her allies. She knows what her fate is, and they, can and they cannot risk her foiling their plot. They are loyal to the cause and the cause alone, 
her life must be sacrificed accordingly. As they pull up to shoot her, it is easy to see the look in her eyes suggests she knows they have to do it. Pull the trigger, tie up the loose end, continue the fight. The characters know their efforts may be fruitless, but it doesn't stop them from fighting. On his way to execution, Gerbier tells himself the following, Love has meaning for me only as it applies to the chief. He means more to me than anything, more than anything but less than life. If Luc Jardy died, I'd still want to live, but I'm going to die, and I'm not afraid. It's impossible not to be afraid of dying, but I'm too stubborn, too much of an animal to believe it. If I don't believe it to the very last moment, the last split second, I'll never die. What a revelation. Again, the cause is more important than life itself. Here, Gerbier is almost suggesting martyrdom. If he's not afraid to die for his country, perhaps it'll inspire others to join the resistance. They'll rally to his bravery, gain courage, and overcome a fear of dying. The anti-hero is a favorite of cinema. The character who operates outside of the laws of society in order to improve society. As already stated, these characters are willing to execute their own if it means saving the cause. They're also willing to leave those behind to save their own skin. Gerbier does this himself multiple times. He leaves behind a young communist at the camp he is kept at in the film's opening sequence. Now, he leaves because he is being transferred to Paris, but he makes no attempt to flee. He knows doing so would get himself killed, so he'd rather find a new opportunity and leave the young man behind than doing the more noble deed. When he is waiting to be questioned by the Gestapo in Paris, he convinces a man in a similar position to distract the guards and make a run for it. The man does distract the guards, but pays for it with his life, but pays for it with his life. However, Gerbier gets away and is able to return to his resistance network in Marseillais. Again, he forgoes the nobler deed to save his own skin. At this point, we're led to believe that possibly he thinks of himself as the savior, so he must stay alive. But as has already been pointed out, it's more likely that he does this time and time again out of a bastardized sense of selflessness to the movement. It happens one last time when Mathilde rescues him from imprisonment. He leaves his prison mates behind as they are gunned down by the prison guards. When they shared a cell, he gave each of his fellow prisoners cigarettes to calm their nerves, as if he wanted to befriend them in their hour of need. Of course, this is all thrown out the window. They are of no use to him or to the movement. Time to move on. Upon first glance, there was something very modern about this film. At first, I thought it was the shots and shot composition. But as the film carried on, I noticed that it was shot in a way very common to 1960s cinema. It dawned on me that what made this film stand out and look so modern was the lighting. 
shadows were ever-present. But not in the film noir sense. No, constantly, you'd see half of the face of actors be left in the dark. Melville consistently shot actors with the darker side of their faces closer to the camera than the side that was lit. It's a common practice now, but I don't recall ever seeing a film from the 60s being lit in this manner. It supports the film's grim take on heroic actions. The use of music and sound effects was extremely well done. There is very little scoring in the film, as Melville often elects using atmospheric sounds to tell his story. The increasing silence heightens the intensity and thrill of the daring efforts of the resistance. It's especially effective in the scene where Gerbier, Lebisson, and Mathilde try to rescue Le Perc from Nazi imprisonment. Since music is used to elevate emotions, the audience has no idea what the outcome will be of this scene. Will they die? Will they be victorious? All we are left with is the unsettling sounds of a running truck and the heavy boots of Nazi troops. I'm going to be completely honest. This wasn't my favorite film to cover for this section. This film lacks the artistry the other three films contained. That being said, I did find the story genuinely interesting and intense. It's a great message that, when it comes to war, no one comes out clean. It's the complete opposite of Napoleon, refusing to paint these characters as saints of the war. The performance of Lino Ventura was wonderful, as he seems to relish playing a less-than-glorious hero. He does a great job at keeping the audience on their toes about his true intentions and who he trusts. I loved the reveal of Luc Jardy as the real leader of the movement, and Paul Maurice does a fantastic job blindsiding the audience with his unassuming act in his first appearance of the film. The greatest aspect of this film is that every actor plays their character as having a card up their sleeve that they refuse to show until they absolutely have to. It's fun watching actors play off each other like that. Even they don't know what the other is hiding. This concludes our first season of Film Survey. Season two will premiere in two weeks' time and is called We Shall Never Surrender, England's History on the Silver Screen. I will be covering the following films in no particular order. 1917, Dunkirk, Bridge on the River Kwai, Darkest Hour, Lawrence of Arabia, and a compare and contrast episode of Kenneth Branagh's Henry V and the more recent The King. Thank you for stopping by on this week's episode of Film Survey. This show is researched, written, and hosted by myself, J.G. Murphy, and is part of the TMK Pictures family of podcasts. If you would like to view a transcript of this episode, it will be available on thefilmsurveypodcast.com. If you would like to share your thoughts with me on this film, make sure to follow Film Survey Podcast on Instagram, or you can shoot me a message on the J.G. Murphy on Twitter. You can also email me directly at jgmurphy at tmkpictures.com. It is possible I may share your thoughts with the rest of the community. I host another podcast, Obscurities of the Silver Screen, with my dear friend and colleague, Remy Gray. Episodes are available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. 
please be sure to check out more of TMK's content, including Space Stuff, Look Ma No Helmet, and Inner Idiot Child. All shows are free to watch on TMK's YouTube channel. Just look for The Green Clover. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to next season.